Amen. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be here with you all this morning. Thank you for having me to preach here. I'm a pastor at Parkside, which is on the east side. I haven't been to the west side since the pandemic began, so it's great to be back over here. Especially this morning, it's the first morning that your pastor is back with his new bride, which is amazing, and we're thankful for that. And I know as a church, you guys will be praying for their covenant together and with God, and, and uh, my wife and I have, have also uh, committed ourselves to praying for, for them. And I met Steve, like he said, through a mutual friend. Um, just finding my place in the Bible there. But uh, through a mutual friend named Matt, who is a pastor at Parkside on the west side. And uh, seems like a great guy. He was really committed to God and really committed to you all, his church. And so we praise the Lord for that. I'm happy to fill in for him this morning. And I'm going to seek to do what he would do if he was preaching. And that is we're going to glorify the Lord through the study of his word this morning. And we're going to celebrate the Lord Jesus. And hopefully my prayer is that I will provide clarity from God's word from Romans chapter 1. So if you want to go ahead, you can turn there. I'll read that scripture for us in just a minute. But I want to show a rightful passion for God this morning as well. The church at large in America is going through a time in our current climate and in our current context when, like every other time, no matter what the context is, we need to be reminded of the gospel. But I feel particularly during our current climate, we really need a gospel reminder for the church in America. We are living in a day and age where I think we are bombarded with information. I call a lot of it noise because that's what, honestly, a lot of it is if we were to analyze it correctly. And sometimes that noise gets picked up and it gets pulled or dragged into God's church even. And that can be distracting. It can distract us from the basics of the Christian faith. Things like who God is. God is, God is Father. God is Son. God is Holy Spirit, co-eternal and existing in perfect union with one another outside of the creation. The three persons of the Holy Trinity are distinct and yet are one in nature. We need to remind ourselves of who the God revealed in the scripture is. We need to remind ourselves constantly of the actual problem with our world, not the perceived problem with our world, but with the biblical actual problem, which the Bible says is sin, that we all have inherited through Adam, one man who sinned, we all have inherited a sinful heart, which means that we naturally glorify ourselves rather than God. We need to remind ourselves constantly, and I think especially in our current context, of God's mission to redeem his faithful people out of bondage, out of sin. And he does that through the gospel. So, we must know what the gospel actually is and why the gospel is so beautiful. So this morning, my hope, my endeavor is to make clear the gospel and its implications from the book of Romans. So that's where we're going to go ahead and begin. And as I prepared for this particular message, there was a thought that crossed my mind. It's something that I wondered, and this is what I wondered. I wondered a specific question. I wonder what God's people would respond if I were to ask them, what is the obligation of the church? 
Or to word it differently, what does the church need to do? What does the church have to do? In a sense, it's a rhetorical question in the sense that I'm not asking you to yell out your answer. But I'm actually going to, before I read Romans chapter 1, I'm going to give you 20 seconds of silence. And I want you to think of an answer to that question, and maybe even write it down if you're a note taker, especially if you have a pen with you. But if not, just think in your head, what is the obligation of the church? What does the church have to do? And I'll give you 20 seconds. That was 21 seconds. Let's read from Romans chapter 1, verse 8. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Would you please pray with me? Lord God, we come to your word this morning. And we humbly ask that your Holy Spirit would overrule anything that I may say that is uh, in error, and that you would use your word to do your work by your Holy Spirit. We trust that you will do that. We ask that you would give us the ability now to actively listen and to apply this text into our Christian walk. In Jesus' name, amen. So a little context here is I'm preaching through Romans with my young adults group. As Steve said, I'm a young adults and care ministry pastor, which is sort of a broad blanket. But one of the things I get to do is I get to preach uh, every Wednesday night with the young adult group that meets at Parkside, which is about maybe, maybe 50 people. And so I get to, I get to ex, uh, exegete the, the scriptures and walk through a book of the Bible. And so I know, I realize that you guys are not in Romans And so you have not yet studied the verses that come before chapter 1, verses 8 through 17, which would be chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. So let me just give you a little bit of context to catch you up so that you will be able to follow along this morning. But when I did preach Romans 1, 1 through 7, this is what we said. We said that Paul is writing to the church in Rome to clarify the gospel. So he wants to give a very clear and a very concise answer to the question, what is the gospel? He writes as an apostle set apart by God for the gospel. 
The gospel is promised in the Old Testament. The gospel is seen in the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul and the other apostles have been called by Jesus for a specific purpose. That purpose is for the faith and obedience of all the, nation, all the nations for God's glory. The Romans are included in this unfolding plan of salvation. We're not yet, in chapter 1, verses 8 through 17, into the meat and potatoes of Paul's overall argument that he makes in Romans. And so, for that reason, you'll notice my outline for this sermon is fairly introductory in nature. He's really getting at two things overall. So, two big overarching sections that we will tackle here. In verses 8 through 12 here, we're going to see Paul's thoughts on the Romans. And then when we get to verses 13 through 17, we're going to see Paul and evangelism. So we're going to broadly look at verses 8 through 12 first. Paul is thankful for the believers in Rome. Why? Verse 8, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. They're presumably a very, very faithful bunch. They're committed, and because of their commitment, he uses their faith as an example. Christians everywhere were saying things like this. Yes, there is the church in Corinth. Yes, there is the church in Galatia. And they're making progress, but they're really kind of struggling along in their faith. But have you heard of the church in Rome? They really have exemplary faith. And this is conjecture on my part. But I wonder if the reason why their faith was so exemplary was because of the fact that they were being suppressed, they were being pushed down actively by the government around them, and they were actually facing some very, very real oppression. Think about it. When the emperor is literally breathing down your neck, you, by necessity, must know who you are committed to. You must know your God, and you must know and be committed to God's people. It's by necessity. So verse 9. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you. So Paul has seen their exemplary, their amazing faith, and he says, as he serves God in the gospel, he does so always mentioning and always remembering the church that is in Rome. The people who received this letter originally were the people the Apostle Paul used as an example of how Christians are supposed to walk in faith. That's important for us to understand when we study the book of Romans, because elsewhere in the New Testament, let's take Corinthians, for example, we find that that is not actually the case. That church was in chaos. But the picture we see with the church that's in Rome is that they actually seem to be believing the gospel. They were guarding and they were keeping the gospel, and they were living out their faith. So their deeds actually did match the faith that they claimed to possess. Verse 10. I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. So he admits that he, he prays regularly that he could come to the church in Rome. Verse 11. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. He says on a personal note, he's longing to see the believers in Rome. I'm personally afraid 
that the reason we often do not see this type of unity in the church today is not because it's impossible, but because we've lost the sense that we need this kind of unity. That it's not just a suggestion, it's actually something we need. And so, it's because we fail to realize our need for Christians in the entire world that we often do not long for Christian communities or Christian community and fellowship all around the world. It was Calvin who once said, There is none so poor in the church of Christ that who may not impart to us something of value. But let me suggest this. Maybe, possibly, if we began to experience the sort of suppression and oppression that the church in Rome was facing, we might begin to see and feel some sort of longing that we see from Paul in verse 11. And I'm going to give you just two very, very brief examples. The first comes from when I visited Scotland in 2015. And what I experienced in Scotland, if you've ever been there, what you will experience when you go there is that there was a nation that was once quite literally propped up by its Scottish Reformed heritage that now has been deeply impacted by the atheism that has come from their universities, the University of Edinburgh, for example. So that's where um, people like Darwin and Hume came from. And the nation now has this dark cloud of godlessness that hangs over it. And right smack dab in the middle of all of that, what I experienced was a strong and a committed community of God's people who knew what they believed and were willing to live among one another in the face of all kinds of suppression amongst the dark society because they knew that they needed each other in their walk with Christ. And so they received us very gladly. Secondly, I was in India in February, so five months ago. And in India, I don't know how much you know about India, but what I experienced, this sort of unity, this sort of com commitment, I experienced not necessarily in how I was received this time, but when I left. And let me explain. The church in northern India, I was, I was there, I saw it with my own two eyes, it's heavily oppressed. Heavily. Here in America, you walk out of this church, you're going to find crosses on all kinds of buildings as you drive by. You're going you're to go into the bookstore, you're going to go to Barnes & Noble, you're going to see Bibles that you can buy. That's not going to happen in northern India where I was at. That doesn't happen there. I actually was there for two weeks. I didn't see one cross, even on a church. They are heavily suppressed by the government, and they are heavily oppressed by their government. And when I left, this is what they begged. The pastor looks at me, Pastor Isaac, and he says, Please don't forget us. They understand that they need us. They understand and they are committed to this sort of Christian unity. And so my prayer for the church in America, for your church, for my church, for myself, and for each of us as individual Christians, is that we would begin to see the need that we have for one another. I ask the Lord in my, my quiet time to give me that sort of longing for his people, the sort that Paul displays here. Verse 11 and verse 12, he continues on. If you look in verse 11, he says his desire is that he would be able to just impart some sort of spiritual gift to strengthen them. You see, this actually proves that my theory is not just a theory. I think I'm actually right here. I think they really were being oppressed by their government. 
The people of Rome were being pushed down by those ruling over them, and at times they were worn down, at times they were beaten. And Paul says, I wish I could strengthen you in person. His thoughts are completely selfless. They're completely others-focused. He is not looking inward. He's looking outward. I'm going to tell you a story, and I'll tell you at the front here that it's, it's not a true story, but I'm going to tell it. I'm going to tell it anyways. It's about a man who died while running on a trail. And he died because he was dehydrated. And he was trying to get back to his car where there was a water bottle. And instead he collapsed and he, had, he died of heat stroke. But he was found only 30 seconds later by a fisherman who was fishing in the lake at the park. Does anyone here see a problem with a story like that? I do. There were people around. There were others walking in the park. Families were picnicking. Why didn't anyone offer the man water? Well, I don't want to be too hard on the people. They didn't offer him water because they didn't know that he needed it. They weren't paying attention to him enough to know that the man needed water. They were paying attention to their own things, picnics, fishing, things that were going on in the park. Like I said, it's a made-up story, but it's an, it's an analogy to what Paul is talking about here. If we as God's people are not looking out actively for the rest of God's people, here in Cleveland, in the state of Ohio, in the nation of the United States, and throughout the world, if we're so concerned and inward-focused, we're not going to be able to provide the water that our brothers and sisters need when they're dehydrated. We are not going to be able to provide the rest that they need when they're tired. We are not going to be able to to provide healing for their wounds when they are scarred. He says here that we may provide just in some way, any way, a spiritual gift to strengthen our brothers and sisters. What does that mean? Verse 12 tells us what he means. That is that we may be Mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. He says the reason that he so longs to go to Rome, to be with the believers there, is because he has a spiritual gift to strengthen them, and they have spiritual gifts to strengthen him. Jeff Mills is one of the most godly men I know. Jeff is the executive pastor at my church. We just celebrated his 70th birthday last week. And uh, he's a wonderful man. He's been a pastor at Parkside since the early 90s. But when Jeff speaks to me, and by the way, I'm 29 years old. I've been a pastor for seven years. So, you know, he's got quite a bit more life experience than I do. He tells me that I disciple him as much as he disciples me. Where does he get that? Why can he say that? Well, I think he gets that by the fact that the gospel has humbled him like it's humbled Paul. So that he's able to say that he needs the spiritual gifts of the body of Christ just as much, if not more so, than they could ever need him. If you and I ever struggle with thinking that we don't need the body of believers, it's not necessarily merely because we think we're better than someone in God's family. It might just be simply the fact that we believe that we don't need them at all. But I invite you to read this book of Romans this upcoming week. You're going to see in Romans 
The gospel should transform our thinking, that we should be transformed by the renewing of our minds, which happens only by the gospel, so that, for example, we realize that as Christians, because of the gospel, Jews and Gentiles will be saved to be a part of God's people, and we all need each other in sanctification. Let's move on. I have a second section here, verses 13 through 17, and that's Paul and evangelism. Verse 13, Paul gets very personal here, and he says basically, Y'all should know I've been trying to come to you, but I haven't been able to yet. And he says the reason he wants to go to them, quote here, is to reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. What exactly does he mean by this? In reference to verse 13, John Murray writes, The idea expressed is that of gathering fruit, not that of bearing it. So John Stock comments, in other words, he hopes to win some converts in Rome, just as among the other Gentiles. It would make sense, if Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, which is what the Bible tells us, it would make sense that um, he would go to the capital of the Gentiles, Rome, and that he would actually see people converted underneath his ministry. And why is it that Paul makes such explicit mention about this, and why is he so passionate about this? That is the question. Because verse 14, and this is important, he is under obligation. That refers back, if you let your eyes look, to chapter 1, verse 5. It refers back to that, which says he has received grace and apostleship, quote, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. So he is under obligation to preach the gospel as an apostle to Greeks and to barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish. So let me paraphrase that. He is under obligation to preach the gospel to anyone and everyone who might come to believe in the Lord Jesus, whether they be in Judea, Samaria, or anywhere to the ends of the earth, to preach the gospel to everyone. Because God seeks to save those from every nation, every tribe, every language, and because God has sent out people to preach the gospel, to proclaim the good news to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, because he called Paul as an apostle. Paul says this, I am under obligation. I just have to do it. I have got to do it. It's what God has called me to do. I have to preach the gospel to everyone, everywhere, regardless of who they are, regardless of where they're from, and regardless of what they have done. And so, verse 15, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So you probably understand then, why did I, ha- why did I begin, begin the sermon in the way I did? Why did I ask you to write down what you think is the obligation of the church, what the church has to do? I said that I believe that the church in America needs to reestablish the main tenets of the Christian faith. We must cling to what is main and plain in Christianity. I believe that Paul has already made clear in chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, the gospel. He's going to go on in chapters 2 through 8 to expound and make very, very clear what the gospel is. But he's already said this, that he has been set apart, verse 1 of chapter 1, for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, 
through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. And then gospel clarity is so important that he goes eight more chapters into this. But since he has already provided an articulation of what the gospel is, I want to now, with the rest of our time, think about the question, so what do we do about it? If he's clear on what the gospel is, then what does God's believing people, God's people who have, who have come together in unity by the gospel, what are we to do about it? Has the obligation of the church changed since Paul wrote Romans? Is what the church should feel that we must do in our conscience any different in 2020 than it was when Paul wrote Romans? That is the question. And I have heard many notions in modern Christendom that suggest somehow the church at large has a new or a different obligation than ever before. So I want to hash that out. I want to think that through. Yes, Paul was an apostle. We all acknowledge that. But God's mission did not die out with the apostleship, even if all the apostles died. The last one being the apostle John. But the message of the gospel and the obligation of the apostleship has not died out. That means you and I are not merely asked then to preach the gospel to all people. We are under obligation to preach the gospel to all people everywhere, to proclaim the gospel, to tell the good news. And I want to just highlight the mission that Paul has been called to. Paul could have said a number of things here. He could have said that he is under obligation to do a number of things, but he specifically says he is eager to preach the gospel. He could have said this, I am eager to feed the hungry. And feeding the hungry is a good thing. Trust me, I am not anti-feeding the hungry. And at times, Jesus does exactly that in the gospels. But that's apparently not what Paul was under obligation to do. He could have said, I am under obligation to relieve suffering. And by the way, I think relieving suffering is a very good thing. But that is not what he says. He says explicitly, I am eager to preach the gospel. And the logic here, follow this logic with me. The logic here is that his obligation to preach the gospel has to do, it's directly tied to his obligation as an apostle. And so we must ask the question, an obligation to who? Well, an obligation to Jesus, of course. And why is it his obligation to preach the gospel to everyone, everywhere? Well, because that's what Jesus' mission was. That's what Jesus' mission is. And if you don't believe me, then later on, go reread Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30. And when you do, here's what you're going to see. Jesus is in his own hometown, and he unrolls the scroll of Isaiah, and he reads it. And then he says, I'm just going to quote part of what he reads. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news. That's the word gospel. To proclaim the gospel to the poor. The poor here is to be understood as the, not as the financially poor, but as the spiritually poor and the spiritually needy. Those who are able to say, I need a Savior because of my spiritual separation from God. 
So because it was Jesus' mission on earth to preach the good news, the gospel, to humans who were poor in spirit because of their sin, and so if you read Luke chapter 4, then the rest of the gospel, you're going to be struck. You're going to be struck by how often Jesus preaches the message of salvation during his ministry. Then he accomplishes salvation in the fact that he actually is, he goes and he dies for those who will believe in his perfect life lived in our place since we are sinners. His sacrificial death in our place since sinners deserve to die. His sacrificial death accomplishes our salvation. His resurrection from the, from the dead and his ascension into heaven saves the poor souls of sinners like us. And then Jesus resurrected from the dead and he says to his people this. He says, right before he ascends to heaven, what does he say? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And I want to point this out again. If that was the commission that he said right before he ascends to heaven, so it's of utmost importance, he could have said a number of things there. He could have commissioned them to, for example, reverse social structures. He could have commissioned them to care for physical needs. And by the way, we should care for physical needs. But that's not what he commissions his church to do. Above all else, instead, he says, make disciples. And by the way, that's not just a commission for pastors. That's not just a commission for the missionaries that we send our money to. He is saying that to everyone who believes in him. But why? Why does Jesus commission his people to do that? That's where we are here in Romans 1, 16 and 17. Why did Jesus come preaching the gospel? Why did Jesus commission his followers to preach the gospel? Here it is. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. If you want a life verse, if you want something that's worth getting out of bed in the morning, look no further than Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. I pray quite literally that my life would be lived in a way in which every single thing I do has to do with these verses. Whether you are a nurse, whether you are a fireman, whether you are a politician, none of those things are your identity. None of them. Your purpose and your identity should be tied directly to the gospel, and you should live your life for the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of salvation for all to anyone who will believe, to the Jew first, and then to the Greek. Why? Because in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. So now we're at the point in the sermon where you say, yes, but Paul was such an effective evangelist, and I don't feel that that's, that's me. Okay, I understand that. So what can we learn from who we believe is such an effective evangelist, Paul? Well, I like where John Stott goes with this, and so this is where I'm going to go with it too. You're going to notice that Paul says three things about evangelism here. In verse 14, he says, I'm under obligation. In verse 15, he says, I'm eager. And then in verse 16, he says, I am not ashamed. Under obligation, eager, and not ashamed. So that means this. You and I can diagnose how we are thinking about evangelism by analyzing our own attitudes about sharing the gospel 
and comparing it to Paul's. So I do it like this. Brandon, do you understand that you are under obligation to evangelize and to tell all non-believers, regardless of your natural affinity towards them, the gospel? Are you eager to do so? Are you ashamed of doing so? And then we could think about why it is Paul is so enthusiastic about evangelism. He says in what is probably the most famous quote from the book of Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. Okay, so when you think about that statement, that Paul is saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, does that strike you as a bit odd? It does me a little bit. Maybe you're somebody who thinks, well, he's the Apostle Paul. Of course he's not ashamed of the gospel, right? It's Paul. But let me ask you, friends, why would he write that if he wasn't at least tempted to be ashamed? Why did Jesus explicitly tell his disciples in the Gospels not to be ashamed of him? I believe it's because Jesus had the foreknowledge of being able to look ahead and to see that they might be and they would be tempted to be ashamed of him. I think we often wrongly depict Paul as this stoic man who, uh, we think of him more like Rambo, right? He's, uh, he's this stoic man with not a lot of emotion. But Paul says elsewhere in his letters, he says that he comes to the church in Corinth, quote, in weakness and fear and with, with much trembling. That doesn't sound to me like a Vin Diesel or like a uh, Rambo. Paul knew that the gospel message was a stumbling block for people. He knew he would meet opposition over evangelism. He knew he would be put in danger for preaching Christ, but he did it anyways. And he wasn't ashamed. Why? Why? 116, Romans 116 is one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. Because he says the reason he is not ashamed is because Paul has seen the power of the gospel to save anyone who will believe in Jesus. The only way you and I will likewise not be ashamed of the gospel is if we see the power of the gospel in our own lives and in the lives of other Christians around us. And so we think of it like this. Because of the gospel, I now have a heavenly father and a personal savior who loves me and gave himself up for me on the cross. Because of the gospel, I now am made new and I now am made whole. Because of the gospel, I now have the gift of the Holy Spirit. Because of the gospel, my eternity is secure in Christ. Because of the gospel, we all who are here who believe in Christ are now a member of God's family. That is the reason why you and I do not need to be ashamed of the gospel, no matter what kind or how much opposition we face going ahead in the mission of the gospel. Jeffrey Wilson once commented on these verses, this means that whenever the gospel is preached, the power of God is at work for the salvation of men, delivering them from the dominion of darkness and bringing them into the new age, which was ushered in by the appointment of Christ as the Son of God in power. So if you're here this morning and you find that you are ashamed by the gospel, Perhaps it's because you have not known the grace of God in your life. So the correct response for you 
is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to call upon his name, to have a relationship with him, because through a relationship with Christ, you will come to know the power of the gospel. Perhaps another reason why you are ashamed of the gospel is because you haven't taken notice of the gospel's effect in the lives of other believers. You haven't taken notice of those who are running into marvelous light out of darkness and out of shame. So for you, I would say, read the Bible. You're going to find many, many examples in the scriptures of those who came to know Jesus. We actually read about one. Steve or somebody just read out of John 4. What a wonderful example of what, what I'm talking about. Be a part of God's fellowship, not just this local, local fellowship, but God's capital C church across Cleveland and across the United States and across the world. And notice how it is that God is transforming lives by the gospel. I have to end by saying something about verse 17. And there's three things in verse 17 that I'm quickly going to help us make sense of, and then I'm going to close. Let me reread it. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God, is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous will live by faith. That quote there, the righteous will live by faith, that comes from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. There's also a puzzling quote in there about the righteousness of God being revealed, quote, from faith for faith. And then there's this theological notion of the righteousness of God. So let's, let's understand that, and then I will close. The righteousness of God first, let's consider that. The question as to what Paul is referring to here when he says righteousness of God, that's a big question. <laughs> and theologians have spilled a lot of ink over it. And I don't think we really need to get into all the ways that people have understood it. So let me just take it, tell you that I take it, that the righteousness of God, quoted in verse 17, uh, sees the gospel as a divine accomplishment. This is the righteousness of God, and it is the righteousness from God. God requires a perfect holiness. He has a standard of personal holiness to be in his presence. But we are sinners, and we are unable to receive such a status. So Jesus must achieve this status on our behalf, which is exactly what he does by bleeding and dying on the cross in our place. It is revealed, therefore, in the gospel. God grants each of us this righteousness by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ when we are welcomed into his presence. Charles Cranfield was a minister who once wrote it like this, For in it, the gospel, as it is preached, as it is proclaimed, a righteous status, which is God's gift, is being revealed and so offered to men and women, a righteous status, which is altogether by faith. Secondly, that little phrase there, from faith to faith, what does that mean? I can assure you that this is not a main and a plain thing here. Um, a number of explanations have been given for that little phrase, but I think because Paul has evangelism in mind, I think probably what he's saying is that uh, by from faith for faith, that's referring to evangelism, being from one believer to another believer as faith spreads in evangelism. And so finally, the righteous will live by faith. That's the Habakkuk 2.4 quote. Many theologians, and uh, I'm including myself as a pastor into this group, they, uh, they understand this quote to be meaning, the person who through faith is righteous will live. The person who through faith is righteous will live. 
I think Paul's concern here is launching us into the book of Romans, specifically for how it is that sinful people become righteous. This is why I take it that the next few chapters of Romans are going to take us through the first part of this sentence and explain how it is that a person through faith is righteous. And when we get to chapters 5 through 8, Paul will explain how the person through faith is righteous through faith is righteous, will live. That's the structure of Romans. Now, I get to teach Romans with my church all the way through. You all will not get to be there for that. You guys will be here studying 1 Corinthians? Yeah, studying 1 Corinthians. Uh, and so I want to go ahead and in my closing remarks here, I want to I be a pastor to you all for a minute, Okay. My suggestion for us in our individual quiet time is that we would, this upcoming week, read Romans. If you do so, you'd be reading three chapters a day, right? Two, two to three. Commit yourself to reading Romans. And as you read the next few chapters, you're going to notice that Paul explains how God's wrath is against anyone who will reject him, whether that be uh, he's, he talks about pagans who just utterly and outright reject him, whether that be uh, the religious type person who rejects him because they think by doing good things they'll be saved. Okay? So he goes on and he talks about how all who reject him live underneath his wrath. When you read those chapters, you're going to see the reality for those who reject God, and that might make you anxious. You're going to see condemnation that is poured out against anyone who rejects God, and you're going to say, that makes me anxious. That gives me anxiety. You might become fearful because you have the task of taking the gospel along with God's people to all of the lost souls of our world, and that might overwhelm you. That might seem like a mountain that is so steep and so high you don't know where to go with it. So you might want to be tempted to water down the gospel. You might be tempted to make it more palatable, to make it more of a, some sort of political involvement or something, some sort of social involvement or some sort of come be a part of our club. That's really what it's all about. Or come throw some money at the problem and that's what it's all about. It's not about heart transformation. It's about some sort of surface level. As a pastor, please, while I'm here this morning, allow me to plead with you as a church not to do that. There is one gospel. One. There is not multiple gospels. There is only one. One gospel that saves, and it's God's gospel. It is founded by him. The gospel has its source in him. It is for his glory, and he is sovereign over his gospel. There is one gospel, but he has entrusted us to spread his gospel to those from every nation, every language, and every tribe throughout the entire world, in the midst of a world that is broken. And that has been even more obvious in 2020 with the coronavirus and with everything that has been going on at a societal level. We just see how the world almost seems chaotic. But the answer for all that we observe in a world influenced by so many people who have rejected God, the answer for that, let me plead with you, it is not a political answer. It is not an economic 
answer. It's the gospel. It is the gospel. Our ultimate faith, our ultimate hope, it has to remain in the gospel alone. Alone. We can't add anything to it, and we cannot subtract anything from it, no matter how much we are tempted to do so. One last quote, and then I'll close, I promise. But Wilson writes, The unpopularity of a crucified Christ has prompted many to present a message which is more palatable to the unbeliever. But here's the key. The removal of the offense of the cross always renders it ineffective. That's Galatians chapter 5, verse 11. So may we all take seriously our obligation to proclaim the gospel to all people in all places. May we all be eager to proclaim the gospel And may we not be ashamed of the gospel. Let me pray with us as we close. Lord God, we thank you that you have given us your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you have, even though we are sinners, we thank you that you have not left us in our sin, but you actually uh, have a mission to bring glory to yourself through the gospel. So we pray that we would commit ourselves to the good news of Jesus, who, who, who lived a perfect life and died on the cross in our place, and who you rose from the dead and have now uh, sat down next to you on your throne. We thank you that he now intercedes for us. We thank you that because of him, we now have a relationship with you, Father. And we pray, thanking you that you granted to us your Holy Spirit, so that we are enabled, we are equipped now with your gospel to go and proclaim, to go evangelize, and to make disciples of all nations regardless of of who they are, regardless of what they've done, Lord. Make us all people who have a singular uh, goal in mind, that being uh, our Savior Jesus who is in heaven. We thank you for this church. I thank you for the way that they have welcomed me and my wife this morning. And we pray, asking now that you would apply your word into our hearts uniquely and individually and also collectively as a church. In Jesus' name, amen.